0: Amen. Our sermon text this morning comes from First John, First John chapter four, verses seven to twelve. I'll give you a moment to turn there. First John chapter four, starting in verse seven, reading to verse twelve. love God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God he who does not love God does not know God for God is love in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him and this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son To be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. go to the Lord with in prayer. Father, we thank you for the preaching of the word. We thank you for Christ who speaks to us. Do that now. Speak to us, Father. May these words spoken from this pulpit be true, warm, and representative of who you are. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Give us ears to hear his voice. We pray. In his name, amen. Amen. The Bible, it's a strange document. I'm going to read you a verse from another place in 1 John. It's chapter 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there's the children of God, and there's the children of the devil. Do you speak like that? Anybody at work this week call anyone a child of Satan? It's a strange document, and I think if more people were to read this, they would perhaps hate us more than we already do. Uh, A few days ago, it's actually further back than that, I saw a child of Satan at Harris Teeter. It was a child of Satan, I'm 100% certain, and I don't mean this, this is not hyperbole in other words. She had a long black cape, she had odd tattoos, And on the cape were filthy images, weird images. Couldn't quite tell what was on the cape. But the thing that gave away the fact that she was a child of Satan was on the back. The cape said, I belong to the church of Satan. Sometimes it's obvious. Other times it's not. First John, John gives us a series of tests. This is the way John sets things up. He gives us a series of tests. Who is a child of God? Who is a child of the devil? It's not always obvious, but there's certain features. There's a number of contrasts that John lays out. The goal of these contrasts is written in 5.13 of this book. This is John's goal for writing this letter. He writes that Christians may know that they have eternal life, that they may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John writes, in other words, so that Christians may know they're in the family of God. That day of Peter, I knew immediately. We're not in the same family. For my purposes that day, we were not in the same checkup line either. John makes contrasts like this. Whoever practices righteousness is born of God. Whoever loves the world or the things in the world is not of God. Whoever overcomes the world, they're born of God. Whoever loves the world or the things in the world, they're not of God. It's stark, it's clear. And many of these contrasts are general principles. They're not meant to be conclusive, but still they're helpful, they're a guide to us. Sometimes, of course, Christians do not act like we're in the family of God, do we? When that happens, John gives us, he gives us assurance. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says this, We Christians have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we sin, we should go to God. Confess it to God. Seek forgiveness in Christ. So these principles in 1 John are guides to help us recognize The nature of the children of God and the nature of the children of the devil. And they help us know what we should be striving for. And it also helps to know what we should be on the lookout for. As I said, sometimes the differences are apparent, sometimes not so much. For our purposes this morning, the focus is on one particular contrast between the children of the devil and the children of the world. And we see this in verses 7 and 8 of our text. Verses 7 and 8. People who love others, they're born of God. People who do not love others, they have not been born of God. Verse 7 is, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8 is the contrast. He who does not love does not know God. In 1 John 3.10, which I read at the beginning, puts it this way. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And then he gives us more tests. So, the person who does not love does not know God, but they know the devil. That's who they are acquainted with. That sounds strong, but that's who they are friends with. And this may strike you, but remember, this is the way Jesus himself talks. Remember John chapter 8 in the gospel. The religious leaders were full of hate. And already at that point in the gospel, still early on, they wanted to kill Jesus. And our Lord shows these leaders the root of their problem. Jesus says to them in verse 38 of that chapter, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The religious leaders respond back, whoa, whoa, whoa. Come on now, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus goes on. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Ponder that for a moment with me. Unbelievers' will is to do Satan's will. Their desires are to do Satan's desires. Even more, they can't help it. Unbelievers have to do Satan's will. They are bound to him. They obey him. They are slaves to him. They're slaves to sin. So you see, believer, do you see the great misery that Christ has rescued you from? Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not bound to Satan church, and this is sealed with a promise from our Lord from that same chapter, John 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free... You are free indeed. So let's consider the nature of John's exhortation at the beginning of verse 7. Take note, he uses this phrase, let us love one another. It may not seem like it in English, but it is a command. Sometimes this this language, let us, sounds a bit soft. Let us can sometimes sound like a suggestion or it can sound less than a direct command. But this is not a suggestion. This is serious business. Might be better if we just take off that let us. We must love one another, brothers and sisters. We must love God. These are not aspirational ideals. It's just so hard to love people sometimes, isn't it? And though we often fail to obey the law of the Lord, they are the laws of the Lord. And according to our Lord Jesus, these two things are a summary of good Christian living. Love God, love people. So John's exhortation, verse 7, let us to command. Now take note of that famous phrase there in verse 8. God is love. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? No other writer says it quite like that. God is love, and indeed he is. Love is not just something that God does. It's who he is. It's his nature. God is love. So in verse 7 and 8, John is exhorting Christians. Love one another. For that's what people in God's family do. The people in the other family, they don't love. They hate. Let's move now to verses 9 and 10 John tells us more About the nature of the love of God He says this God is love Into verse 8 I think We need to know what does this look like God is love, it's kind of esoteric Isn't it, it's up in the clouds What does it look like What kind of love does God Love with There's all sorts of loves in the English language I love my wife It's true. I love my dog. I don't have a dog, but if I did, I would love the dog, I'm sure. I love french fries. We use love a lot, but surely God's love for the church is not the same as my love for french fries. The love of God has been manifest. That is, it's been made known. It's a big deal for John. This is a short book, but manifest is used here in this short book more than any times in the New Testament. In John's Gospel 2, we see this word used several times. John progressively reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus reveals himself to the world through a series of signs, as you know, in the Gospel of John, that show he is the Christ. In John 2, we read that Jesus' first public sign, his first public miracle manifests his glory. He turned the water into wine, and his disciples marveled. His glory was manifest. Made known. Jesus was not fully known when his disciples first followed him. They learned more and more about him all the way through his ministry. The signs made Jesus' glory and his divinity manifest. And in a similar way, the love of God, that is, the love of the Father, was not fully or chiefly known until God sent Jesus into the world. Think about that. For thousands of years, it was not yet manifest. Not in the way you and I know. God certainly provided fatherly care, love, provision for his people think. When they're in the wilderness, they receive the manna from heaven. That's fatherly care. That's fatherly provision. And when they're wandering in the desert and they're thirsty, even though the people grumble, God in his fatherly care has Moses strike the rock and out gushes the fresh water for God's people. Later, God provides a land for his people. That's fatherly. And he provides a temple that they may meet with God. And God provides sacrifices for his people that they may have their sins forgiven. That's all fatherly care. And we see it sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. It is God's chief and most loving act towards his people. And the offer of his son It's much greater than the offer of manna in the wilderness. For for whoever eats of Jesus's flesh, will never be hungry again. And the Son offers water. Unlike Moses, the water from Jesus is living water. Whoever drinks of it will never be thirsty again. God's love is most manifest in Jesus. You see. In the temple in which God's people met Israel, it pales in comparison to meeting God face to face. We meet him face to face in the sun, don't we? And the sacrifices offered in the temple, they were but a shadow, a sign, a looking ahead. It's the most loving act the triune God could have made towards man. Our great God, our loving Father, sent his son, his own son, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's not mere bulls and goats, it's his son. And let me ask you, what more could God have given in order to purchase us? First Peter 1 says this, you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a land without blemish, without spot. There's nothing more precious, not jewels, not rubies. Remember what John is trying to do in these verses. Let's not lose sight of that. He wants us to love one another since we are in the family of God. And now John is showing us what this love looks like in the family of God, and so what does it look like? It's agape love. It's brotherly affection. affection. It's benevolence and goodwill towards others. But it's more than that. The love of God is sacrificial love. It's a willingness to be despised for the sake of someone else. It's a willingness to take a beating and a willingness to be misunderstood. It's love that does not count a record of wrongs. This love from God is even a desire to die for the sake of others, even for enemies. Romans 5, 6, and 8. 5, 6, 7, and 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will would one, would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God, he demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. We're still enemies when Christ dies for us. This is a, this is a unique love. And many brothers and sisters in Christ's church struggle to understand this love. I'm convinced of it. I don't have a survey or data or anything like that, but I've come to this conclusion, many of us, many in the church, perhaps some of you, Struggle to grasp the love of God. I say this based on my own experience. I say this because I've talked with so many Christians throughout the years. A number of theologians agree with this point too. The Puritan John Owen says this, Christians are often worried to whether God loves them or not. John Owen goes on. They are fully persuaded of Christ's love and goodwill to them, but the difficulty they have is whether the Father accepts them and loves them. Is that you this morning? Perhaps some of you do not struggle to grasp this idea, this idea of the love of God. If that's you, then wonderful. That is wonderful news. And I mean that. But do know that many in the church struggle to to consistently grasp this. It's just a struggle for so many. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians to grasp the love of God in the middle of his letter to them. The Ephesian church was doing well. And he's writing in those first chapters about the doctrine of God. And he's telling them who they are in Christ. They had received the gospel. They believed the gospel. They knew God. They'd been born again. So it's interesting that right there in the middle of Ephesians, Paul finds it necessary to pray for them in such a way. He says that they are rooted and grounded in love. And then he prays for them that they would more fully grasp God's love. He says this, being rooted and grounded in love, I pray that you May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. The love of God surpasses knowledge. That's one reason we fail to grasp it. So we must pray for the Spirit to help us. That's what Paul does. Our natural instincts don't get it. Even Peter. Look at his instincts. His instincts didn't quite grasp God's love and God's condescension. Peter, for a moment, rejected the lavishness of Christ's love. Recall, when Jesus, in the upper room, he's washing the disciples' feet. What happens when Jesus goes over to Peter? Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? when Peter realizes that Jesus is indeed washing his feet, his instinct is to say, you shall never wash my feet. It's our instinct sometimes, isn't it? Christ does this lavish thing for us, and we whoa! That's that's too much. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a dog and a dog's master to illustrate this point. The dog's master would throw his dog a piece of meat from time to time, just a little piece. And the dog ate it directly and immediately received it, just a little piece of meat. One day, the master put before his dog an entire entree, an entire slab of meat. But the dog, thinking that his master could not possibly be so generous, the dog would not take the meat. But the dog turned and moseyed away. It's some of us, isn't it? Our cup overflows, says the scripture. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes we don't want that. The words of scripture do give us a clear picture of God's love. God's disposition towards those who are in Christ is one of fatherly pleasure. He looks upon his son with joy. And he looks upon those who are in his son with joy. That's the way God sees you. This is why we can be called beloved. We are beloved by God. And it is no small thing to downplay the love of God toward his saints. This is not a small misdeed, it can create ripple effects in your life. One theologian has put it this way. To imagine that God does not love us is to deny his true nature. It's a serious issue. To repudiate his character. It is to distort the free grace of God into something much less worthy. A conditional love that depends on the attractiveness or worthiness of the object for it to be exercised. It goes on. Divine love is utterly different. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. God loves us because that is his nature. You must accept the lavish offer of the gospel. That's a command. It's not a light thing to diminish it. Note that the text calls Jesus the begotten of the Father Your translation may say the unique or one and only Son, begotten. I like that one. It's a helpful reminder of the creed. Our Lord was begotten, not made. Jesus was not created. Jesus is the eternal Son. He has always been there with his Father and with the Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together covenanted to redeem mankind by sending the Son. To die on a cross and then rise from the dead. That's the gospel. And verses 9 and 10 in our text highlight two reasons for this. Note that. Verse 9, the Son is sent that we might live through him. Verse 10, the Son was sent that he would be the propitiation for our sins. That is, that he would be the atonement for our sins. God makes it possible for sinners to be forgiven. And not only that, we can live through Jesus. We've been redeemed to do good works. That's Ephesians 2. And God gives us union with Christ that we may have power to do good works. We can't do these on our own. We must abide in Christ, and that's possible now. He gives us the Spirit. And now, by the Spirit, we are Jesus' hands, we are his feet. So, moving on. Now that we're the hands and feet of Jesus, look at verse 11. If God so loved us, let us love one another. We also ought to love one another. This is the same exhortation in verses 7 and 8. John returns now. He gives us the same one. Love one another. God's love has been lavished on you. His power has come upon you. And one of the main reasons he does this is so that you would turn and do Likewise. And what happens when we imitate God's love, His generous sacrificial love? What happens when the church does this? Well, verse 12. When we love one another, God's love is perfected in the church. Where some translations put it, God's love is made complete. We are not meant to just receive the love of God and sit on it. We don't just receive it or put it in a jar or bury it in your backyard. The love of God is meant to be spread. So that's what verse 12 is all about. Verse 12 is getting at this. The love of God reaches its goal when God's children love one another. At that point, God's love is perfected. That's what that means. That's interesting language. Perfected or made complete. The love of God is made complete when you and I love one another. It achieves its intended effect. Missionaries long to see churches built, but their goal is not just to plant churches. Think of it this way. Their goal is to plant churches that then in turn plant churches. When that happens, the missionary task is perfected. It's made complete, to use the language of John. So when this love of God actually makes a difference in your heart, it changes you and others. That's the goal. The goal isn't just to accept the love of God. The goal is to turn. Turn to one another. Consider God's love. Besides, this strengthens the witness of the church. Jesus says in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this you will know, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer calls this the ultimate apologetic. When a group of sinful people receive the love of God in their hearts and then they turn and love one another with generous, true, sacrificial love, those people that sort of church it's unlike any place in the world. That's a city upon a hill. It's a light shining in a dark place. And people will wonder, unbelievers will wonder, why is that place shining? Those people are loving one another. What is it about there? Our love for one another is a magnet. Let's close with just two further points of application. One is this Receive the love of God, it's a command. It is not humble to reject the sweet offer of the gospel, it's quite the opposite. God by his very nature is love And that love has been manifest in the gospel of his son Jesus paid the penalty You deserve on your behalf He paid it all You must believe this and receive it And if you want to dwell with the Father in communion Your task is twofold This too is from John Owen One, receive the love of God And two, show gratitude That's our task That's our duty Accept the love of God and then praise Him for it. That's the Christian task. Second point of application is this As the Father sends the Son, so the Son sends the church. The sending of missionaries, the planting of churches, this is perfecting the love of God. The sacrificial love of both the going and the sending of missionaries is meeting the goal of love. The church sending out missionaries, perhaps even to die, is to imitate the love of God. It's not optional. The missionary task is not optional. Church planting, making disciples, whether overseas or here, they're essential because the perfect love of God is in us. And it won't be complete. If we just sit on our hands and we do not make disciples, if you think about this, we'll be lacking God, yes, has given us his gift, but if we sit here and we don't get on with the mission, our love will be incomplete. So we must strive to make disciples, even of all nations. As God sent the Son, so the Son sends us. In closing, I'll share a quote from the Puritan John Boyes. This is about the love of God. He says, The love of God is like a sea into which a man is cast. He neither seeth bank nor feeleth bottom. The love of God is like a sea. You can't see the shore. You can't feel its bottom. It's overwhelming. It's incomprehensible. Paul prays that we can understand it. It surpasses our ability to take it all in. But brothers and sisters, we are commanded, take heed and pray that God will grant us the ability to understand it. We should pray this and work it out in our minds and hearts. And as we do this, remember remember our context here. As we receive the love of God, This isn't just for our benefit. This is so that we may love one another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for the sending of the Son. As often as many of us have heard it, We still require your spirit to grasp it. And with Paul, we pray that we will grasp the height, and the depth, and the breadth, and the width of the majesty of the love of God. This is a supernatural act, and we pray for your help. For once we understand your love, it will have a wonderful and salty effect on us, your church. We pray this for your name's sake. In the name of our...